0: This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Let me just start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you are at work in our lives. I thank you that we can just come before you even this morning and, and sing your praises and Sing words that remind us of your love for us, of your work in and through your Son. Lord, we can uh, praise you and thank you for the blessings that you give. Uh, for some of us, the blessings are the rain. And for some of us, the rain causes us to need more prayer and intercession from you, Lord, um, and everything in between. But it's it's a, just a good reminder that you reign on the righteous and the unrighteous, Lord. You bless uh, all of your creatures who are made in your image in one way or another. And um, that comes from your good grace and from your, your perfect providence, Lord. So I pray that as we wrap up this letter this morning, as we think about what it means to land on your character and your word, I pray that you would open our hearts um, to have a more clear understanding of who you are. And as we begin to understand you better, we can't help but respond to worship you and come to you as our good father. So I thank you for this time, in your name I pray, Amen. So our um, series title "Somewhere to Land." Uh, when we were kind of uh, with the liturgy team, usually I, I write some summaries or I come up with a theme, and I'm looking at the verse. And we're even as an elder team, we're praying about things in our community, and which kind of this idea when you have. Conversations around where we're going to meet in the future, or things around our church, or different hard life situations within the community in general—it um, feels things feel a little bit rocky. And life being as difficult as it is, uh, you need somewhere to land. <laughs> like you need you need somewhere to rest or to to just kind of you know sigh uh, and feel like there's stability and feel like there's peace and feel like there's. Um, uh, Clarity, maybe, is another way to put it too. And I think James, just the context that he was writing in when he's writing to people who are struggling and in a situation where they're not in their normal routine, they're not in their normal culture, they're not in their normal home. Um, or even as Christians, we live in a broken world, and, and we would say it's, it's common for Christians to say this world is not our home. We, we look forward to the new creation. We look forward to things that are broken and causing us to suffer to not be the case. And so in this in-between time, James is writing this letter and encouraging people and giving them somewhere to land, giving them somewhere to just sort of place their joy and their hope and their peace. And and I think really, as he writes to them, giving a measure of clarity as well. And that's kind of how we've been angling the series as as we walk through this is that James is helping giving us a measure of stability as we look for somewhere to land. And so this morning, I want to change that a little bit. As I was praying about this last passage, I was thinking about what James is sort of ending this section with. I wanted to sort of reorient that a little bit and say that although that, that way to frame it as God and his word is a place for you and I to land, a place for you and I to get a measure of stability, at the end of the day, framing it that way is, is me-centered. Is me-centered. It's you-centered. It's about you. It's about us. It's about what we get out of the things that God communicates to us. And that's a little bit okay? Because as believers who are leaning on God's word and getting a measure of peace and stability and rest and joy from the things that God is offering, we should be thankful for that. We should praise him. We should glorify him. We should, we should encourage one another to go to scripture and go to the Lord for that stability. But more important than that, more important than where you and I have a place to land is it's about the glory and majesty of God. God's glory is more important than your stability. Both are good. (laughs) Like both are important. Both are emphasized in scripture as an aspect of the, the Christian life. But at the end of the day, God's glory is more important than your stability. And so I've kind of titled my, my outline as, uh, it's personal. <laughs> this is personal. And I mean that for God. Like it's, it, it's personal for him. Like when we orient our thinking and our minds and our goals and our, and our why kind of behind everything and it's anything less Think glorifying him when that becomes not the number one thing, he takes that personally. He takes that personally. He's not a um, like a force as good as the Star Wars movies are. (laughs) He's not an algorithm as hot as that word has been in the last few months. (laughs) That we can just figure out and pull the right levers and get the right prompt. We're not prompt engineering the Lord. (laughs) He's a person. And we won't go into the Trinity, but we're Orthodox, so he's three persons in one, but he is a personal God. And he takes how we think of him and how we orient our lives and the why behind everything we do, he takes that personally. Because more than anyone in this room, he is the person who's 100% consumed with his own glory and majesty. Amen. Everything he does is ordered around him getting the glory and the credit. He's, he's made us in his image so we can reflect him so that he gets more glory and majesty. Even before the fall, he's made us in his image so that we could relate to him and enjoy him so that we could praise him and give him more glory and honor and majesty. But we are designed, we're created, we are made so that God gets more glory. That has to be number one. And I think that shows up in the book of James. If you look at chapter 1, Verse 1, what does James call himself? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant of God. We are his servants. You know, uh, there's a new Bible translation that came out that I think is a good Bible translation, but it actually... We, we talk we, in some Bibles it's bond servants or servants and we kind of like there's a certain word we like don't want to use and the new Bible translation says James a slave of God like we're purchased by him to serve him and that's how James introduces his letter he's a, servant, he's a slave of the Lord look at in James chapter 2 verse one, one of, the, one of the highest, this is the only time that they use this title of God, of Jesus this particular way. Chapter two, verse one says, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And that's one of those words where like, I don't know, no one, we don't use Lord with any, any other context, you know? Like if you were to walk into, uh, you know, I don't know. Well, I guess there was a pop singer, but you know. Lord is just like not a word that we use. We know We don't call anyone in charge that. But there were Christians in the first few centuries of the Christian church that wouldn't call Caesar Lord because Jesus was the only true Lord, the only true Lord of glory, and they lost their lives over that. They were so much a servant of this Lord, of this King, of this, uh, I want to say the other, the the P one, but I don't know how to pronounce it. So I'll just leave you hanging with that. This King, this Lord potentate or what's the word, huh? Yes. (laughs) Good to be careful when you're off the cuff, throwing out synonyms, um, early Christians acknowledged so much that they were servants of God that their role was to glorify and honor and, and serve the Lord the Lord as his slave because they had been purchased by and for him that they were willing to lose their life over not calling someone else lord look at chapter 4 verse 15 this comes up all over the book of james verse 15 says talking about I think it was Ben that did this sermon we make all these plans and we, we, we feel like we're in control of our lives and he says in 15 instead we ought to say if the Lord wills we'll do this or that why would we say it that way because we're his servants it's personal to him He's purchased you with Christ's blood, and now he's called us to serve him. It's, it's who he is and what he's asking of us. And so when James is saying, if the Lord wills, he realizes that as his servants, our desires, we make plans and move forward, should be, is this something that serves and glorifies and honors the Lord? Is that the why behind all the things that we're doing? And then in the passage that we read, Calls up the idea of the name of the Lord a handful of times. But look at verse 14 in chapter 5. If any among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. It's another like Christiany phrase that we don't like. You know, in the name of the Lord. <laughs> Whatever that means. Just like an incantation over, over our Instagram post or something. And the name of the Lord goes back to, uh, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, goes back to the the third commandment. I don't take the name of God in vain. So as his servants, as those who are personally called out by God to serve him, what do we mean when we say the, the name of the Lord? Really, we're talking about his character. We're talking about who he is when uh, God reveals himself in scripture from Genesis all the way up through Jesus, he reveals himself through his names and his names are representing his character. Like the Jesus is called Emmanuel because he is God with us. Like his name communicates who he is to us. Moses says, who should I tell them is coming? What, what is the, who is the God that is sending me? And he says, I am who I am. Or we get the word Yahweh or Jehovah. He's saying, let me communicate my character to you with my name. And it's that there's a sense in which I am who I am. You can't refer me to anything in this creation and accurately represent me. I, I'm, I'm the all-consuming fire that the bush doesn't even burn up in because I don't need fuel. Because I exist within who I am. God's using Yahweh, he's using the word Jehovah to communicate the reality that he's completely and utterly separate from all creation. So when we talk about doing something in the name of the Lord, in in this passage, it's, are we doing something consistent with who he is? It's personal for God too, though. He's called you out as his servants. He's rescued you from from sin, Satan, and death through the blood of Jesus Christ, and, and you are now purchased to serve him. So who else should represent his character more than you? He's glorified, and you and I have somewhere to land. We have a purpose. We have stability When we act consistent with who we really are as his servants that are called to reflect his character. Because he is our Lord. I think that explains, it's kind of like a long introduction maybe to explain verses 12 or verse, just this one verse. The beginning of what we read in chapter five says, but... Above all my brothers do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. If you're his servants and you represent his character and his name and you're not honest, he takes that personally. It's personal to him. You're the ones called to represent the truth. And so if our words, he he says, but above all, and there's questions around that sort of translation and what he's getting at, but the general consensus is like, this seems to James like top priority kind of issue right here. And if we think about the book as a whole, he says the tongue is like a rudder that steers the rest of the ship. And there's some proverbs and some other things in Scripture that that communicate that the tongue tells us a lot about who we are deep down, about what's going on in our hearts. So it shouldn't surprise us really, especially in the book of James, as he's brought up the things that we say, and then at sometimes they do and they don't represent God. Sometimes we can do things with our tongue that are are nowhere consistent with the name of the Lord. And sometimes we do things with other tongues that glorify him and honor him. And so to end his letter and say, hey, top of the list, servants, as you glorify God in the things that you do, as you represent him, speak in a way that's consistent with who he is. Because he takes it personal. If you don't, you might fall under condemnation. I think it's important for us um, as his servants who serve a a personal God. As we look for somewhere to land, good thing, right? We want stability and no better place than God and his word, right? But who we are is servants of God. So as we look for stability, I think it's important to ask ourselves what's my motivation behind that why am I looking for stability is it to honor my lord as his servant or is it to have an easier schedule this week (laughs) you know Uh, Is it to honor my Lord as his servant because I represent him? Or is it to have a balanced budget at the end of the day? (laughs) Fill in the blank. But if James is telling us that our tongues and our mouths should represent the Lord as a servant, and he's saying, this is the first and foremost thing. I think... For you and I, a good thing to step back is just to say, what is my motivation behind finding this stability? Is it because I am his servant or is it because I'm looking for something else? And if we think about that differently, our personal God does take that personally. He cares. He's invested in you. which kind of makes sense, the the personhood of God. I think illumines the next couple of, makes more sense of the next couple of verses. He says in verse 13, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And we'll go on with the next in a second. He's getting to, and we're gonna spend probably the most of our time in this little section right here, he's getting to this idea of God's providence. And he's going to kind of expand on that as we go into um, this idea around healings and what the elders are called to do and anointing of oil and all the messy stuff in the next couple of verses. But he's getting to this idea of his providence. And I think when things happen in our lives, if if, if anything happens in our lives, good or bad, it's so easy for us to begin to associate the reasons behind all of that for something less than God's personal involvement. I'll give you an example. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was driving to get a hockey stick and I was like, where is this place? I click Google Maps and it's like, gives me the route. And on a section of the route, there was like the little radar gun, like you're gonna get the, the ticket. And I was like, oh, well, that's handy to know. And I'm driving and listening to a podcast, completely spaced out, and I see a flash. (laughs) And I was like, oh, oh, wait, (laughs) was that? (laughs) And there's a car next to me, and we haven't got a ticket in the mail yet, spoiler alert. So I don't know if it was me. I don't know, I don't even think, and I looked, and I was like, I am going a few, I mean, I I think it was like a 30, and I was going 36 or something. Um, And I was just listening to my podcast. All I'm thinking about is I, knew that because Google communicated that to me. I completely spaced it out because I was listening to a podcast. Uh, now I have to talk to Bridget about a bill that's going to come in the mail. Like, I'm like going through all these, like all these secondary causes. And, I'm, and I, you know, wasn't like I got, I think I was more anxious about admitting failure to Bridget, you know, especially after knowing that I saw that before I left the house. But I'm not, that's just a situation where I'm thinking about all these secondary things, whether it was a Google Maps or whether it was a conversation with my wife or whether it was the podcast I was listening to. My thoughts didn't go up to God's personal providence of working every little piece of that out to put me in that situation for his purposes because I'm his servant. And I think what James is doing when he says, look, you worship a God who takes this personal. Are you suffering? go to him he's the one orchestrating all of these things he's your good father as he describes earlier in James as the father of lights in in whom there's no shadow due to change where all things good come from him so when there's a difficult thing in our life, there are other causes, right? Like we can say uh, that, yes, I should have known there was a Google thing. We can say that I'm dealing with this situation because there's problems over here with my job, or I'm dealing with this relational issue because someone over here is struggling with some other thing. And we can we can list out all of those little secondary causes, and there's nothing wrong with that. But James is encouraging us with this idea that God is personal, and his providence isn't like a machine isn't like a thing where he's just not involved and not there. He's literally there working every little detail out for you, his servant, his children, the people he loves. Go to him when you're struggling. Know that he's the one that's directly involved in these things. Did something good happen? (laughs) He says, is anyone cheerful? Are you thankful? Did, are you enjoying a blessing that God has given you? Praise him for it. He's the one that gave you that. It's He's personally involved in your life. The London Baptist Confession, which is the... Um, it's a real, I mean, it's, for everyone that went through the leadership intensive, the book is very thin. If you want one, we have one. It's very thin, but there are no wasted words. <laughs> like every sentence is like a dense thing, and there's a chapter five is on the providence of God. And it's, you know, it's not very long, but it's like four or five little paragraphs that communicate what our particular faith tradition, what the elders themselves believe about God's providence. And kind of what that means, it's a, uh, you can find it online, but uh, you, I can't I didn't keep it in my notes. If you could, I have a quote from this section that gives us a little bit of a definition of God's providence. I have to look. So this is paragraph one, and it's okay if you don't follow everything. I'll make a couple comments. God, the good creator of all things, starting with his character, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, Dispose, govern all creatures and things. Like, you be more comprehensive. Everything. From the greatest even to the least. I guess you could be more comprehensive. By his most wise and holy providence. By his most wise and holy providence. He's orchestrating all of these things out for us. It tells us why. And this gets back to the glory of God. What to the end, which is a way of saying like, for the purpose of, to the end, the purpose for which everything was created according to his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. Why? To the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. It's a mouthful. (laughs) Short version. He's working everything out possibly so that he would be more glorified because he's so good and he's doing it for you. But if that's what he's doing, his providence, the way he's orchestrating all of our lives is so, it's personal, it's it's intricate, it's for you, it's not a machine. And I think that helps us understand this next section a little bit. Because we're talking about a person, our creator, who is doing all of these crazy things that are just beyond our ability to understand. And when we read this next section, That says, pray, have faith, and God will heal you. I think in our minds, you and I want to systematize. We want to know the structure and use God as like a machine to get the healing that we want. It's just easy to go there. But we're talking about a person who's working his complex plan out for his own glory, for his purpose, and we're his servants. Let's look at what he says, and then we'll make some comments. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. There's our Lord, our master, our king right there. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Seems fairly straightforward in good James fashion, you know. He's just like, here it is, you know, he's just kind of like communicating to us directly. I think it's interesting, when, when you have a particular understanding of Scripture, and you, a good test is to say, okay, well, if it's about, if, if my understanding of the Scripture is, well, it's about having prayer where you, you had enough faith, and God, and if you just believed enough, then he would do that thing. Okay, if, if that's how I understand this passage, that you can, you can take that understanding and be like, well, how did that apply if, if, if it was Jesus' life? And you, and you think about how Jesus a, approached things, or, or you can even look at Paul, because we just have a lot of his stuff. And when Lazarus died, yes, he raised him up, but did he just not like, take the time to pray for him beforehand? <laughs> Like Jesus, right, would have, would have totally understood and, and, and could have easily healed him at any point in time. There were people around Jesus who died that he cared for. He shed tears because he was sad that his friend died. Paul talks about almost losing one of his fellow missionaries because he got so sick that he almost died. And he was moved to tears and was, was really concerned for him. There's there's these situations in scripture, and so you're asking yourself, well, what is God saying here? What is he? What is James communicating to us? Then how do I begin to understand what's going on? And I think the example that he gives right after this helps navigate some of that, because we are talking about a personal God, a, a God that works powerfully, that can actually use prayers to heal. We we have good great examples of that in scripture. But we're also talking about a God who is orchestrating everything out for his purposes as his servants, who's, who's in, as the confession says, like his infinite goodness and wisdom, has, it's beyond our ability to understand. And so how do we like balance those things? How do we understand when God is listening in a way to work powerfully, to work healing? And when as his servants are we submitting to what he's doing in the world and suffering under the brokenness of it? So we're trying to, like, kind of make sense of that as we understand this personal God who is working providentially through all these different circumstances. And so I think the scenario that he gives right after this helps a little bit. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as is working. For example, here's verse 17, Elijah is a man with a nature like ours. Like, he he was like us, you know? He wasn't God in the flesh like Jesus, you know? He had, he had his own struggles as well. If you read about Elijah, you're like, wow, okay, there's still capable of doing some pretty cool stuff. But he makes the point that Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Okay, so for example, if you want it to rain a bunch, just pray like Elijah did. <laughs> it's like, okay, this makes it, almost makes it more confusing. Uh, we're, I mean, it was, uh, yeah. When I was visiting Sarah Nelson and her family. They were talking about how the rain and the crops and all the stuff and, and not where my head is at. I'm just like, oh, it rains. I can't bicycle outside. They're like, well, if it rains this day, then like the output of the crops could be like so much more because we're in this like really important time. And if it rains this day, like it could be like, or if it doesn't rain, like bankruptcy, you know, like, and I, so I opened up James and just, just pray (laughs) for that day. No, I didn't do that. (laughs) So, so this is what I think if here is, uh, let's see if I want to read the, let's actually, let's read this. In Deuteronomy 28, I have it on the screen. This is way before Elijah, but this is God communicating who he is, his personal connection, his interaction with his people through Moses. He's communicating his character and his word to his people, and this is what he's sharing to them. He said, As my people, I'll give you a little context. He says, As my people, here are, here's my character, here's who I am. This is what it looks like for you to serve me and represent me. And when you serve me and represent me as my servants, look at the benefits that will come from that. Look at how I will work things out for your good. And then he goes on to the next part and he says, as my people, because I've rescued you out of slavery, because I've taken you out of Egypt and now you are called to be my slave, called to serve me. If you don't represent me because you're in my family now, this is the part where he says, let me tell you what will happen with that. Because God is saying, as I providentially work these things out, I take this personally. And Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifteen says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and the statutes I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And here he lists the curses. "Cursed shall you be in the city and curse in the field. Curse shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, the increase of your herds and, the, uh, and of your young flock. Curse shall you be when you come in, and curse shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do, until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. He takes it personally. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until it has consumed you off the land that you're entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. That's kind of how he ends that section. So if you reject me and don't represent me, there are consequences to those things because you're my people and I take that personally. And when he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and prayed fervently that it might not rain. Here is Elijah the prophet seeing the people of God completely reject him and his particular context with a king who is bringing in worship of other idols in the one of the most high-handed ways through the book of kings in chapter like 17 and 18 he's seeing all of this stuff happen he knows that god has communicated himself his his character his desires how he's going to providentially work things out and isaiah is praying fervently is what james says that god would act consistently with the things that he says and who he is he believed that the rain wasn't an accident because of a particular set of climate situation. It was actually God personally responding to what's going on in, their, in, the, in the nation consistent with the way he's communicated before. He believed, you know, we understand a lot more about the weather right now. That's good. It's still, you know, what was it? Two days ago, we were like, let's go to the zoo. It's going to be great tomorrow. The next day, it was like pouring rain. <laughs> you know, like, okay, well, well, with all the things we know, we couldn't predict it <laughs> the very next day. However, there are causes there. We're, we're not denying the advancement of understanding <laughs> medicine or the weather or anything like that. But what is that the, the root cause of all of these things, like our confession says, is that God is personally working. God is personally working and interacting through all of these things. it's not an accident it's not X, y z you know what La Nina came in and caused there to be three and a half years of no rain, and maybe you know that's God is every little piece is God personally working things out so if God is personally working things out. And the, the example of Elijah kind of shows us how as a prophet of God, he was using what God was saying and communicating and, and praying for God to act in a way that would discipline the people and draw them back to the worship of God. That's what he's praying for. And he, he, he had faith that God would do that because God had communicated these things. He prayed for that. And lo and behold, the personal God, as he prayed these things, This is how it worked itself out. Let's go to Proverbs 3. Now, we're going to take that example and kind of move a little bit closer to the meaning of this text, I hope. I'll just read it. Proverbs 3, it's a section on wisdom. At the beginning of Proverbs, it's like a bunch of chapters on like, this is why wisdom is so good. (laughs) Like, like, lean into this, care about this, because it's an important topic. And he says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Why? For length of days and years of life, in peace they will add to you. Length of days and years of life, peace will add to you. He's, he's saying, you're gonna be healthier if you heed the things that I've said. And then later on in that section, in verse 11, it says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof, when, he, when the Lord is personally working out consequences in your life, don't despise that. For the Lord reproves him who he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. When God is bringing a measure of suffering into our lives, when he's bringing difficult things into our lives, doesn't change the reality that he delights in you. And I want to be, um, be careful not to, like, this isn't the only passage about suffering in, in scripture. So we're trying to understand what James is saying here about healing. An aspect of our personal God, just an aspect of our personal God is as he works every little tiny thing, is he delights in you and he's working and molding and, personally shaping you so that at the end you would actually be drawn closer and deeper and more in love with him and you would reflect him and you would be you would you would be more true to representing his name as a servant the, I mean the whole book of Job is basically his friends trying to say this is why you're suffering and at the end of it God is like no you guys don't get it <laughs> like so there is a over temptation to say uh, there's no direct effect. Uh, there's an, an over temptation to say, "Here is what I'm doing in my life, and here's exactly why God is doing this." Like we, we got to be careful not to say, "Hey, if if we're." If, I'm, if I had a bad day, at, here's a good one I've heard from people. If I have a bad day at work today, it's because I only did 10 minutes of quiet time and I normally do 30. <laughs> and God is just punishing me for not, not doing that. Like, he, He's less happy with me. He doesn't delight in me anymore because I didn't earn XYZ thing. That's not true. Even in the discipline in Proverbs, saying He still delights in you. But there's an, I think there's an opposite temptation to put everything on these causes and not believe that God is personally working in the trials and and struggles that we deal with. And James is communicating to us that God is actually working in our lives consistent with how he is and his nature and you are his servant and there are times when God is actually bringing a measure of suffering because he wants you to recognize what's going on in your heart. He wants you to see that. He wants you to, to turn from that, and he wants to use that sort of all of those different things that are going on personally in your life to see you confess and to turn and to then be healed, to learn, be, learn from the discipline that he's given you. I think a, a parallel passage to this is in Corinthians. Paul says basically this, the, the, A good summary. He's talking about the Lord's Supper here, and we we preached about this a little while back, and we said kind of. I think we said some of the same things. Um, I think Kent actually did this one, so I'm sure he did. Um, But he's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he's talking about how when we approach the table in a in a in a terrible way, in a way not consistent with being his servants, when when we approach the table that way, God takes that personally. Like, he is offering us pictures of his son who suffered and died on our behalf. He's offering, this is, his body is represented, his blood, the, the wrath of God poured out on him and not on us, which is why he delights in us. So, Paul is saying, we need to take that seriously because our personal God takes that personally. And, he, and in Corinthians eleven twenty seven, 27, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you know, reflect for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. And it's interesting that he says right here, if we don't appropriately consider ourselves as we approach, he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And we say, no, actually, Paul, it's because of germ theory. And, <laughs> you know, and those are, I, yes, I'm not trying to diminish the secondary causes and the things that we grow and learn. And those are all, we as Christians, we want to be the first ones to lean into all the amazing, complex, wonderful things that God has communicated in his creation. But those are secondary causes. The primary cause of all of the things going on in our lives is God's personal providence. In the next verse, he says, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. He's rescuing us from our own foolishness. So let's go back to James. I think that's what James is trying to say in this particular context. And some commentators talk about the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And I I think we can oversimplify that and say if we just believe enough. There's an aspect of faith that means believe, but, but there's so much more. Like it wasn't because Elijah just like believed enough. He knew this personal God. He was, he was consumed with his word. He, he, he grieved that his people were being led astray. He saw how they were potentially in the place where they could be condemned with the world because they were going off with the world. So he's praying fervently, knowing that when God brings his judgment and dries up the land, he uses that to discipline his children and draw them back in. And in the story, that's what happens, and it goes bad again because that's how the whole testament works <laughs> but but the, but there's there there's this idea when we have I think there is a sense in which there are times in which and if you read stories about missionaries or or people serving in some of these extreme ways there's there's a sense in which we have a real sense of what God is doing and who he is and we know personally how he's working things out because we're so close and so intimate with him and we believe and we have faith because it's consistent with who he is and we go to him and we pray and he works out these miraculous things because it's he's the one getting the glory for all of that i think that really happens and still happens does that mean you and I can pull the levers and not have to go see the doctor anymore? Just have the elders show up and fix, you know, I don't think any of you think that, but I'm just trying to say that, that we're, we want it to be an algorithm that we can just figure out and not a personal God that we're close to. His providence is personal. I think that's why he ends the way he does. His providence is that personal because at the end of the day, he knows that death, that the brokenness, that everything comes from being separated from him. He wants you to be near to him and enjoy him. When he says in verse 19, my brothers, if any of you wanders from the truth, wanders away from the truth. And this is how he ends the letter. Like James was thinking, you know, he didn't just, I don't think he just put a bunch of topics and shook it up in a hat and pulled them out and was like, oh, that's how I'm going to put the letter together. (laughs) So he ends the letter. James, more than any other epistle, seems like he is super. Familiar with the Gospels. Like, and, I, and maybe in the last few weeks, we've sort of shown you how some of the words he's saying is con- same thing that Jesus is saying. Jesus showed up, and what, who did he claim he was? The truth. James knows that wisdom, that truth, are not these like abstract things that we just need more of, that we can learn. Wisdom is God. (laughs) Shared to us and made most clear to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Truth isn't a list of facts. It's a person. It's Jesus himself. He is the truth. He told us directly. James is concerned for us as much as the Lord is concerned for us in this letter. He says, my brothers, if any of you wanders from the truth, if any of you veer from the personal presence of God in a way that's not consistent with all the things that he's communicated, and someone brings him back, which I think is... One of the other themes, like how do we, we bring people back often through our prayers, our tongues, praying for and pleading with God to draw them back in or, or exhorting them or encouraging them. So he's almost like ending the letter with saying, if someone's veering from the very presence of God, you have power in your tongue and you go to bring them back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, wandering from who, but from God himself, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What a way to end the letter. He's like, look around you at all the people you know who are struggling because you're equipped as servants. And if you see someone wandering from God, use your tongue. to Plead with God to work. To, to pray for them. And it's interesting even when it says that they confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That phrase in the New Testament is used of both a spiritual healing and a physical heal- healing. And, and this idea of confessing your sins, it's even some commentators think that, that as we pray for others, we confess their sins and ask the Lord to forgive them so that they would be healed. So that we could keep them from wandering from God and draw them right back into the presence of God. And he's like, if you're doing that, no matter what is going on, no matter how they veered off the track, no matter what is going on, bringing them back to the presence of God will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. He ends the life encouraging us as a community to draw each other deeper into the presence of God. It's because it's personal to him. God cares for every single one of his children and is using, providentially, you, using you as you pray for them, as you encourage them, as you exhort them To rescue people from death and draw them back into the presence of God. God's using you to give others somewhere. I hope that's encouraging to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the amazing power of our tongues. Um, I'm humbled even now as we step into the throne of grace, as we come before you in prayer, as we stand before the consuming fire, Lord, we come with confidence. Forgive us, Lord, sometimes we come with flippancy, but in Christ Jesus, in the truth, in the one who we are united to, Lord, we can enter into your presence we can plead with you as our personal father. We can, we can ask for healing, Lord. We can, we can just share and, and, and spill our hearts to you because you're here and you're working and you care for us. And we, Lord, we can just say how hard it is and you want to listen because at the end of the day, you just want us to be closer and more present with you. So, Lord, I pray that as we look for somewhere to land, as we are dealing with the trials of this world, that it would be your presence that we long for, that it would be your glory as your servants that we aim for. And, Lord, that we would understand that you are personally, providentially working on every little detail of our lives to bring us closer to you. Help us um, accept that and help us give you praises when we see that working out in your life and help us just come to you and and pray for your help when we're struggling. In your name I pray, amen.